0: If you want to be at the tip of the spear of sports performance, the answer is simple. Simply Faster is your insider's edge to maximize results with the highest quality Premier Sports equipment in the business. Visit Simply Faster and level up. Welcome, everyone, to the Companions of the Compendium podcast. Today, I have a little bit of a change in direction. We're going to the longer-distance events, but as Coach O'Connor will tell you, the long-distance events don't mean we're going slow. In fact, we're going really, really fast, and that's a common theme for a lot of Coach Connor's athletes. In fact, nine years that he's been a head coach of the Lafayette Lancers cross-country program, he's brought home six trophies out of nine years. He has a state record in the 4x8, The 3,200, class records in the mile, and probably the most impressive, which is the fastest five-person average at the state cross-country meet for a 5K on the old course, which, so those of you that know nothing about Missouri track and field and cross-country, our old course was probably one of the top three state championship courses in the United States. Sean has a master's degree in positive psychology from the University of Missouri, just like your host here, Ryan Banta. And in fact, uh, the reason why I even got that degree was in large part because of my companionship with Sean O'Connor. For those of you that don't know, Sean is one of my very best friends outside of track and field, and we spend a lot of time together. Now, just because he is one of my good friends, obviously there is gravitas to what he's done with all of his accomplishments, in addition to recently authoring a book called Distance Training Simplified, which is one of the best-selling books on distance training and has led to numerous state championships across the country for other programs following his methods. In fact, uh, our boys cross-country team at Parkway Central and our girls team from time to time have modeled those methods. Success, probably some of the best teams we've ever had at my school. So without further ado, thank you, Sean, so much for being here with me today.
1: <laughs> well, thanks for having me. You, uh, you make me sound pretty impressive there. I you know, <laughs> think about that stuff very much. I just kind of do my
0: thing and, and yeah. I'm just glad I get to glow in the, the glory of your light and all your success, buddy.
1: <laughs> oh, man.
0: <laughs> you give me too much credit. Well, you know, I appreciate you and you've done a lot to raise value, not only amongst our friend circle and, and our group of coaches, but also for coaches around the country It's uh, been really impressive to hear some of the stories on the side, and when I go speak at other conferences, and people say, "Oh, you know Sean O'Connor," I'm like, "Do I know him?" The guy like lives ten minutes away from me. It's like one of my best friends, so I get to be a little bit cooler with the distance crowd, just because I get to rub shoulders with you. But hey, (laughs) speaking of that, talk to us a little bit about kind of your history and evolution as a coach for the listeners that are outside of Missouri that might not know your story. Ooh,
1: well, where do you begin? I mean, I, I was, um, I guess, my first forays into running would be, um, you know, doing the mile in your PE class in middle school, but I went to a private middle school. And uh, so we were doing the mile in the parking lot. <laughs> it was in an L shape. And it was like 13 and a half laps. Like, I don't even think it was the right distance. You know, and I out of a class like mm-hmm. kids, I think I finished you know, burn or something. So, you know, it was one of those things where you're like, okay, like I can see I'm, I'm decent at this. And then, but of course, being in St. Louis, go to high school and I want to play soccer because that's what everyone does. And quickly found out that I'm terrible at soccer. And the coaches quickly found out that I'm terrible at soccer. And, you know, the progression goes like, oh, you're going to start forward. And then after the first game, they are like, yeah, we're going to put you like center midfield. And then like the third game they're like yeah we're going to put you back in the backfield. And then by probably game 5 they're like yeah you're just going to sit the bench. This is you know and you're sitting the bench as a freshman in soccer you pretty much know your days are done. So that didn't that didn't go well but in track you know I was like okay I've been pretty fast you know I'm not I um I'll I'll try track you know I'm just trying to find something I'm good at. And I was going to be a sprinter just like everyone else who goes out for track, you know, because Looks way more fun. The distance kids look like they're suffering a whole bunch, so you don't want to really, you don't want to naturally go into that. And <laughs> I just on a free, a fluke accident. Or just I was just sitting there. I didn't know anyone because I switched schools, and uh, a guy who now is like the best man at my wedding is like basically my brother. Comes up to me and he's like, "Hey, you look like you can run distance. You want to come hang out with us?" I was like, "Well, I know nobody. I have no friends here. So yes." I I am now going to be a distance runner because people will talk to me and I have friends and you know and it starts out like that and you know I I tell that story more just because it it shapes a lot of my philosophy and training and all this stuff because it shows you the importance that you have that's not training related and like the importance as a coach and like and the culture you, you know, you create and all these different things, and so that, uh, so I tell, I like to, I'll start with that story just because, again, like, he ended up being the best man at my wedding. His parents are, like, my my kids call his parents grandma and grandpa, like, and just, you know, one, you know, one moment, in one, one decision that changed the trajectory of someone's life for the better, and it's, and that's ultimately what coaching is, and so back to, you know, getting started wise and stuff, you know, I, uh, if you know the, you know, the Missouri coaches, like I ran for, it, you know, the carries, you know, and, you know, Jim carries in the hall of fame and he, you know, he's awesome. You know, coach, coach Neehouse is our track coach. And he was pretty new when I was, when I started running track, but you know, he was great. And then, uh, the current girls and boys coach at Marquette coach Ebert, he was our, he started my junior year of high school. And so, you know, I learned a lot of different things from them. And then you just kind of progress along, you know, From there, then I was like, okay, they got me wanting to coach. You know, they had a it was a great atmosphere, great people. I was like, I this is what I want to do. Go to college, you know, come back. And then I started, I was student teaching at Lafayette. And then Coach Ski, who I believe is also in the Hall of Fame, right?
0: He is. And for the listeners, by the way, Jim Carrey is not the comedian slash actor Jim Carrey. (laughs) It's uh, a different gentleman, probably almost as successful in the world of high school coaching. <laughs> maybe the comedian was at comedy, but go ahead.
1: Yeah. So, so coach, you know, I've been teaching and I saw they posted a job for a track coach. So I was like, well, I'd love to volunteer. And he was kind enough to kind of help me and brought me along. And I start showing me what coaching is actually like, you know, because up to that point, I had never been a coach. I was just, you know, 22 year old fresh out of college kid. And I also worked with coach Brandon who who then, you know, I coached alongside with when he was the girls coach and I became boys head coach. You know, he, he was awesome. He was great at just interacting with people and listening and like making people feel like, you know, his interaction, how he interacted with people was, was really informative and got a job and, you know, at a different school and was lucky enough to work for a guy named coach Kern, who was, who was awesome. He was really big on developing culture and he was really big on like, um, trying to teach kids like to make this a lifelong endeavor not just a we're going to burn you out in high school get everything out of you and then you're done you know he he really approached things with the philosophy that we want you to continue this for the rest of your life and live a a healthy life and healthy lifestyle and then I go from that to coach Segrist who I I coached with when I first started I first started back at uh, Lafayette and he was awesome he's a crazy old guy all the kids loved him he would chase people on a bicycle you know, he would tell the kids if they, if they went too slow, he'd run them over. And he, some of my favorite stories to this day are from him just saying crazy stuff. Cause he was, he was old school. He was near the end of his, you know, his teaching day. So he, he lost that filter that most of us still had, but he was blunt and awesome. And it was, it was cool to see like, okay, you can actually be like this and like, you know, have fun and, and create this cool environment, enjoyable environment, yet still get things done. And That was awesome. I said, I just, (laughs) I've been really lucky. I've coached a lot of people. And then I coached with you guys in summer track, you and Levine and in a buck bar and Burris, you said you you've had on the podcast before and, Mm -hmm. and Wolbrink, can't forget about him. At that point, you start to see like, man, these people are getting stuff done. Like, okay, up to this point, they had people I was working with, it had, it had success, but hadn't taken it to that serious of a level, I guess. I don't, Again, I don't mean to, I don't want that to sound negative, but hopefully everyone understands what I'm trying to say. It's like, it's like, oh, like we're here. And then everyone else is like, take going here. Like, okay, we can up our game a little bit. We can do more with this. We can, we can get more out of these kids. And then I have to say, I hate traveling with you. You guys keep me up till 1.30 in the morning, screaming and yelling stupid stuff. But I got to go coach a jumper at eight o'clock and got to be at okay. five. Yes. jerks, you guys are horrible.
0: Well, I think the cool thing about that group is one thing we had in common is we really love the sport. We really enjoy coaching, even though there would be some some egos involved. I think we respected everyone's knowledge and reason for being there, you know, and with like all great things it, it's not, you know, we have kids and wives and things that kind of interfere with us being able to dive in as deep as we were in those couple of years. But, hey, we brought home, what was it, two club national titles in that time, tons of All-Americans, some national records. So it was pretty cool. you know. Now, what's funny, and we'll get into it a little bit later, is that you were actually mostly coaching jumpers with us <laughs> at the time versus uh, the distance-orientated crew that you work with now. But before we go into that subject, I do want to talk to you a little bit about are there any mentors or people you kind of look to that maybe – you didn't have direct connection with, but that you've kind of built some of your philosophy on some, some of the great coaches from the past or modern coaches today?
1: Oh, so we're going like big time. Yeah. okay So I would say an interesting thing is I, I've tried, I'm always experimenting with stuff. And so I, I've tried any sort of running system that you've probably heard of. I've probably tried it at some point. You know, we've gone the, uh, you know, the um, Sebastian-Peter Coe route with, and Scott Christensen's take on that on his, you know, multi-paced training systems. I've done that and that I had successful kids running like that. Renato Canova is probably the one I use the most right now. He's the originator of the funnel system or the funnel organizational system, if you will. And he's a, you know, famous coach. He's coached a lot of Olympians, world record holders and everything from from the 3K. And he's primarily now he's marathon, but he's coached had really good success from 3k up just anything you've heard jack daniels is pretty much where all distance kids start you know distance you know coaches start with that kind of with that kind of training and so a lot of those big names i've, I've tried everything you know and then you get to other stuff too like right now like jeff messer is real big you know and if you ever hear have a chance to hear him speak he's awesome out in uh desert vista you know same with um uh the sandberg guys and uh you know mountain vista guys and dalby and um Oh, my goodness, I'm going to get just destroyed for forgetting. <laughs> the listeners are
0: screaming the names out at you right now. Distance land is going to, is just going to destroy <laughs> me for
1: that. But he's awesome. <laughs> yeah, I, I've, I've had the pleasure of talking to him once or twice and saying with Dolby, and, like, they're all really great people, and, you know, they're, they're getting a lot of stuff done. So I've tried to look at all these people and, and more or less say, okay, what are some of the common denominators that everyone seems to be doing? Can we then take that and apply it to your situation to fit the
0: needs of your athletes and your environment? So with that, in talking about Canova and kind of blending in the question that we're going to discuss today about the funnel system, what do you think was such the, what do you think was the wisdom that came from him that clearly laid out kind of the main guidelines that you developed your own sort of and to be clear everyone when we talk about a funnel we're not talking about the idea of shoving everyone down the same system no matter what event they're doing this is just an actual philosophy that's built around trying to attack certain principles of race on opposite sides but i don't want to do i don't want to simplify it to that point because you're obviously one of the masters of that system but talk to us about why was Canova so influential? What do you think is the genius behind his system? What do you think he gets right? So the big thing I think is just the organization of
1: workouts because you know when you look at different training you know whether it's a sprint training whether it's distance training a lot of it's just like okay we have a list of stuff we'll say stuff just a general term but you have a list of workouts that you know work and that are great you know in sprint lane, you got Vince Anderson, you got Tony Holler and one, you know, one extreme you've got, you know, you and Burris and, and Buckfar kind of, you know, doing a little bit of both. You got people all over and you're like, they're all getting results and they're all, there's a lot of common stuff, you know, workouts and things that between all of you. And So it's the same in distance. Like you see all these, whether it's tempo or threshold type stuff, sprint stuff, every aerobic power, whatever terms you want to use, energy systems, paces, whatever. Where the funnel I thought was helpful, game changing for me with that, is it was a way to take all the things that you know work and help them interconnect and work together better. Because, I mean, and it doesn't matter if you're sprinting or distance training. If you do the same workout over and over and over again, after, I don't know, eight weeks, your, whatever term, time frame, depending on the athlete, et cetera, you're going to see a diminishing return. And so if you just try to cram all the same workouts all the time, you're going to get faster, 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 and then you're done. And you're just going to plateau and not see significant growth anymore. And so what I thought was interesting with the funnel was it, to me, it almost think about as an organizational system. It's like, okay, cool. We got all this stuff. Let's put it into this little, like, for me, I use a spreadsheet because I'm a computer science and math teacher. So I'm an organization nerd. But in a little spreadsheet and you can kind of see like, okay, we're hitting this stuff pretty good. we got some gaps here and it kind of helps organize and try to help everything interact better, I guess, would be and build off each other. Instead of thinking things as thinking of training in isolation is one workout here, one workout there. How can we, I hate the word synergize, but I kind of feel like I have to use it here, but find some synergy between, between all of these things.
0: So when you look at that and you put that together, when you showed it to me, the very first time, and we sat down at, uh, oh gosh, I think it was Who Hot, and we had probably our fifth plate of Mongolian barbecue, and I probably had to <laughs> one or two runs to the restroom already and everything, but mm-hmm. we were there for a bit. I was completely blown away, because in many ways, it fit kind of some of the concepts that I was looking for in terms of planning, and like you said, organizationally. And it was mind-blowing because it was this nice, steady progression to what I would consider ever-increasing specific work towards whatever race event you were training for. And the key to our sprint system, you know, Buck, Var, Burris, and myself, Burris being kind of the originator of that, and we titled it The Critical Mass System, is this idea of Overloading and underloading to create certain types of adaptations. Now, the funnel plays off of that, but explain to everybody in detail how that looks at, let's say, 20 weeks out from the state championship, moving all the way in to the state championship. Explain how it evolves, how it creates this progress, and almost eliminates that plateau problem a
1: lot of that is you know when you're 20 weeks out that's all you know if you if you read canova stuff that's like his fundamental period is what he calls and that that's like your basic general almost like general conditioning and the way he thinks about it and if you read stuff he does a lot of stuff on let's run if you ever want to go see distance craziness go just search canova and, and let's run and you'll find tons of stuff so that's your your general, like in distance lane, you hear base building all the time. But one real big thing with with this that you don't see in, in some like of the linear takes and things, he's doing extreme. So if you're training for a 5K, doing long, long distance runs that are fast, like 80%, you know, he's in marathon pace, like 80% of your 5K PR, you know, versus like, and then on the other end, he's doing sprints, He's doing plyometrics, bounding, and so on. And so we do a lot of, you know, a lot of that early on. And what you're trying to do is, again, is you're making the athlete as fast as possible, and develop as much endurance as possible. And then progress it from there, like, okay, we've got the athlete after a general eight weeks, eight to nine weeks, we got this athlete, they are pretty fast. Now let's start to take that and make it a little bit more specific. So we're going to decrease the speed a little bit, but we're going to increase the length because at that point we want, to, we want them to be able to hold the speed for longer. And so can we make it to where, you know if instead of doing 60 meter flies, is what you could be doing by the end of you know that eight weeks, take that and say, okay, let's do 150s and let's see if we can maintain as much of a percentage of whatever you were doing the fly in, if we were to take, you know, take the 150 and split it just the last 100 meters, can we hold as much of that speed as possible? And now we've extended it out from 60 to 100 meters. And then that over time progresses to where, okay, can we extend it out to 300 meters? And Then keep extending to 600 and then 800. And then by the end, you're training for a 5k. It's going to kind of come to a culmination where are like, okay, on the speed end, we've tried to expand. Extend this hopefully to 800 meters or 1,000 meters and on the endurance end. You might have started off with 40 minute or 25 minute, 30 minute tempo runs, and now we're doing 2K repeats, 1200s, or whatever you whatever interval you can get them down to, and have sped up and sped the pace up so you've cut the reps down or chopped it up to where they can actually do it, and now made it more specific. Sprint terms, you're you're doing something very similar if you're if you're talking about sprinting if you're training for the 400. You know, if you just do 400 meter pace every week for 20 weeks, you're going to flatline at some point. So instead, like, okay, we'll start out. Maybe we do some 600s at what would be an equivalent two mile pace, which for them would feel, you know, for a sprinter would feel pretty slow. Or you don't, you could chop that up to 200s with short rest, however you want to do it, whatever the kid can do. And then slowly kind of work your way down to 400 specific. On the other end, you're starting the same place, flies hills, if you want, you could do, you know, you could do bounding plyometrics, all the stuff that is real extreme muscle fiber recruitment, if you will, and then slowly, you know, transfer that to become more and more specific as the year goes on. I guess the <laughs> that's the easiest way I think I can explain it.
0: <laughs> oh, I think that's, I, I believe that's excellent in terms of the explanation. And so for the listeners, what we're looking at is kind of two key performance indicator workouts a week. On one end, you've got like the least amount of load, but maybe the highest amount of intensity or speed that these athletes can produce. And then on the other end, you've got some of the more extensive, long, continuous, specific work. And so where one side of this is getting shorter and more intense The other one is maintaining its intensity, but lengthening out its load. And then when we're getting within three to whatever, four weeks of the end of your season, those workouts start to look very similar in their construction. And so then you're hitting on those key things twice a week, plus maybe competition for a third time in that week, depending on what your competitive load looks like as well, which then brings you to kind of this fruition of really doing the things specifically that are targeting that particular distance very, very well. But what's funny is you're balancing that out with these two very opposite end things that are running simultaneously in the background behind your racing, which as you said, kind of creates this delayed readiness, but yet a higher state of readiness at the end of the year. So instead of getting to that readiness within four or five weeks and then just being stuck, you're pulling and pushing that along for, I mean, even in some cases, 20 plus weeks out, which then allows that peak, in my opinion, and what I've seen from our performances and how much our athletes have improved, Towards the very, very, very end, is that a fair assessment?
1: Yeah, I, I think that's a uh, that's pretty fair. You know, I would, I would say one thing you made me think about there is uh, if you're um, the only downside is that it is kind of a delaying that peak, and so if you're running a like an, in an NCAA system, it would need some tweaking because you know you got to hit a qualifier time at some point to get into you know, or hit a qualifier or, you know, pro again, you would have to, you know, mess with hitting qualifying times and things like that. If that's a situation you're in, then that makes the game a little bit more fun. or the coaching more fun or more interesting.
0: Absolutely. So let's jump off with that. And let's talk about how do you handle track and field differently than cross country. And before you answer that, one of the things that I think all distance coaches or coaches who coach Track and field and cross country struggle with is they want to be superior in both. I have seen a lot of coaches do really well at one or the other, but there are a small handful, and I might be able to count them on both of my hands, which I have to do anyway when I add things up, that can do both really great. And obviously, you're not the head coach in track and field, and I don't think you want that job per se, but I would say you're one of those handful of individuals, Jesse Griffin on the other side of the state as well, who seems to be able to do both sports really well. And I don't want to say why that is. I want to hear from you. Why do you think that is? And then how do you differentiate between those two? sports?
1: I would say probably uh, first and foremost, fine, fast kids who are very talented. <laughs> you look good. And then convince them to quit whatever sport they're doing and come out and run track and cross country. <laughs> no, I, I mean, well, that's part of it. You got to have talent the kids, and, and the kids have to actually go out there and perform. But I think that you they play off each other. Like, I don't think that they're in competition. I think they're they're required. They're both required, and they both help each other because cross country. That's a lot of you know. You want to use more sciencey terms like aerobic power. And the way I think about it is, again, how many event distances you're moving up or down. If you're using like a funnel system, the last six weeks, eight weeks, you've been at 5K pace is kind of the primary primary workout pace. Well, that's a great support for someone who's going to run the mile. It's two events away. It's great support for someone who's going to run the two mile. And you've just done that for a significant amount of time. You go to the winner and you're like, okay, let's go back and hit some of the stuff we've left behind because we just ran out of time and we're racing and all this stuff. So we go back to some of the general stuff and do enough other things to kind of maintain what we built in cross country. And then like, okay, you you went from being a 17 minute 5k guy to now a 16 minute 5k guy. So you have improved aerobically and endurance, from an endurance standpoint. And obviously you had to get faster at some point let's continue to refine that and let's see, let's keep speeding it up and let's see, you know, what you can do in the two mile. And, and like, likewise, you're going back and track helps cross because then you get the kids faster. You know, they're, they're running a lot shorter and faster. They're running 400s. You know, we have some, we had, we've had kids who are one kid who could split 49, nine. And then we, he would go back and in the two mile, he, he'd go out and run nine, what do you run? 923 or something. And that kid was had crazy range. I mean, that was within one season. But we've consistently had kids who are able to run 915 and then go run 51, you know, 51.5 as a handheld split. So not light your world on fire, but solid third leg four by four guy, you know, that you could use in a relay. Track helps cross because it it's working on the speed side of things and it's getting the kids comfortable, running fast, you know, from more of an anaerobic perspective. And so then. After you finish track season, you're like, I just spent a ton of time training two mile to 800. Awesome. Now, can I maintain that? What can I do to to basically extend that velocity to a 5K? Again, go back, hit the fundamental again, because you don't want to leave the pure speed stuff behind. It's real easy in cross country, you know, in cross country when you're running out of time and workouts are taking an hour and a half to forget and not forget, but like chop the flies or chop hill sprints or chop stadiums or cut them out because you're running long so hitting those back early and then maintaining that speed that you developed in track and see okay can i take your new two mile pr and can we maintain as high of a percentage of that velocity into in the cross where in obviously there's things like terrain and other stuff that affects your your times but that's kind of your goal so again they're building on each other one is cross country is an aerobic support for track
0: and tracks and anaerobic support for cross country how do you think coaches screw this up? <laughs> and it seems as if they don't have similar production like you do, and a handful of other coaches in track and field and cross country. I mean, it sounds simple in terms of what you're saying. And, and I agree with everything that you're saying in terms of the pursuit of the diff- different hemispheres of our running sports that both you and I coach. But if it was that simple, why can't everybody do it? What are they doing wrong? And let's be, and I want you to be honest. I don't, I don't, I don't want you to spare anyone's feelings. We don't have to call (laughs) any individuals out, but what do you think they don't get?
1: Well, we'll start with that. Ryan Banta fellow first. (laughs) (laughs) Wrong. Where do I begin that list? No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Um. That's a good question. I don't, there's a lot of pitfalls. Some of it could be, you know, again, we have contact time, you know, our contact days and things like that. And so making best use of those days, there's, there's, <laughs> you could go wrong. I mean, it's hard to say what other people are doing wrong because I'm not in their shoes. But I, I, I have made tons of mistakes. You know, I've oversimplified things too far. You know, I've I've neglected stuff where like, man, that kid got really fast in the 400 and then just neglected that completely, you know, and, and then when they get back to cross country, you know, or getting close to cross country, it's like, what happened to your speed? It's like, ah, I I screwed that up. Oh man, that's, (laughs) I'm I'm trying to think of some good answers for you there. That's a, you
0: know, again, what are the pitfalls that you make? You know, you, you mentioned pitfalls. So give me a scenario like that specific kid you just mentioned, what what didn't you do that was needed and that you felt like you screwed him up? Use your experience a so guide.
1: Yeah. So, my own experiences, and, and this is probably apl- applicable to many people, is you go too far to one extreme, you know. And so, the kid, you know, kids just finished running the 400, 800, and then you get in a rush to where you're like, okay, I got to start. We got to start getting tempo runs in. We got to like rebuild this aerobic system as fast as possible. You overdo it on that side and then you wipe out everything else that you built and track. It's all balance. And so trying to, being patient, I'm not always patient. I kind of, you know, and and having balance, I don't always, I've failed in that. You know, where you you go extreme one end or the other, you can go black, you can make the same mistake where you're like, okay, this kid is a great 800. We're gonna put a lot of effort into maintaining their speed across country. And then they get to cross country and they look great for three and a half K. And then in fourth K you're like, oh, this is this is a problem. This isn't gonna go well. Other issues, I think, is you have to consider that the race demands in a track. You're on a track, it's flat, it's nice, you're, you're you're in lanes for some, depending on the event, you're in lanes. Cross country is up and down, and all sorts of craziness. And you know, it's some weeks are hill, some courses are hilly, some aren't. And so I've made mistakes where it's like, you know, good luck in track, like I'm gonna we're just going to keep them on the track because they, you know, we're coming off track. We'll, we'll train a lot, of, a lot there. We've had some ankle issues or something. And then they get to a cross country course and they, and the hills just blow them up. And you're just like, I messed that up too. <laughs> There's a lot of ways. I, I actually, I keep a list of everything I've done to screw up. And I actually, I link it in my training plan. So I actually go back and look at it like every one, once a month. I call it the lessons I've learned.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I like that idea. Uh, you just made me a better coach. I'm gonna make sure. I,
1: I, well, I noticed I, I I forget when it was. It was probably maybe a year or two ago. And I was like, man, I, you know, man, I screwed this up. Like training wise, this like this segment just went to crap. That went horrible. And I'm looking at it, and I go back and start looking at older training plans. I'm like, what well, are you doofus? Like you should have learned this six years ago. And what what you've made the same mistake twice now in, in eight years. Like you, you deserve what happened to you. So like, okay, I'm not going to let that happen to me again. Like, I'm going to keep a list <laughs> in a Google doc. I can look at it right now. Like I, I was actually, I actually have it right here. It's like, so, you know, stuff that I've messed up is that, you know, variety. Like I, sometimes I get, you know, especially in the pandemic, one thing I learned from that when you're not allowed to coach the kids and you're just trying, they're asking you for workouts and you can give them a workout and that's it. I was like, well, I oversimplified everything to the moon. And so then some kids got a little burned out because they're just doing the same thing all the time. We kind of plateaued locks. Again, we didn't – we weren't just, there was no variety. They got bored. I've, I've screwed that one up pretty good. You know, I've made workouts. I got other notes to myself like, don't, you know, don't get greedy with workouts, you know, making them too long. Why? Well, if you're going to air, air short because broken kids don't run fast, especially if got <laughs> stress fractures. Other things, you know, like notes to myself, I leave all the time, like working on form and technique, because again, you're out of time in a distance land, you're like, okay, I got two hours to crank out all this stuff. And I got a lot of stuff I got, I got to get through. It's easy to overlook the little stuff, form, technique, you know, making sure, oh, before this workout that we're going to do, that's going to blow this kid up. Did they sleep last night? Like, just, just simple little things that I have to leave notes to myself to remember to do.
0: That's good. And and that's really, that's great because there have been times where I'll go back and, you know, with my video blog, my vlog on my YouTube page before I started the Companions of the Compendium podcast. And I'm listening to some of my bonus content that I'm creating. And I'm like, oh yeah, I wish I would have just listened to myself. Like, that's a great idea. Why did I freaking forget that? And it's hilarious because we do sometimes like I remember some of my old fuddy-duddy coaches would be like, ah, son, I, you know, I've forgotten more than you'll ever know or something like that. And I'm like, well, OK. And, and now here we are living the ex- same experiences. But I think it's good to not only journal what the athletes are doing and the effects on the athletes, which I think coaches do a good job of keeping training logs and times, but also like hey, like a reflection on, oh, crap, why did we crash and burn here? What did I do wrong? Don't forget that you've made this mistake once already. Don't relearn the lessons you should have already been taught. Don't fight the fights you've already won. That's really important. And that's critical for the listeners to understand. And today with just that one thing amongst other things, that's going to make me a better coach because it's like, oh yeah, I really do need to do that. One of the things I kind of, felt that you had as a theme here is this idea of shock therapy earlier you were talking about this importance of delaying the gratification reaching a higher peak promoting you know progress over time as opposed to early returns in a high school setting as you said we can do that but I think you also feel like shock therapy might be an issue like radically changing things too quick might devalue or ruin the gains you made in a previous system can you talk a little bit about that that's
1: a very good observation and obviously you know that very well because we've had these discussions before yeah <laughs> but, uh, I have found that because again you know we said earlier I when I was new I was kind of a clean slate as far as coaching goes like my coaches in high school were great but I was a 16 year old kid who didn't pay any well who paid attention enough just to survive a workout but you know I didn't get the training and what they were trying to accomplish with that you know I'm a 16 kid 16 year old kid I was more worried about prom and other random stuff that's that now I'm just like you're an idiot that was that was dumb but anyways so you know I tried all these different things and one of the things that I, I learned from all these different systems or that I became weary of is is changing stuff dramatically in short periods of time and it you know it A lot of it seems like common sense now when you go back and think about it. like, hey, you know, just going hopping out out of nowhere after track season, kid takes two weeks off and trying to do, you know, flying 40s or 30s or whatever distance, whatever you want to do, especially for a distance kid who does not see that kind of sprint work very often. You're going to make them, if you don't pull something, you're going to make them super tight and sore. And then they're basically shot for a week. And you just wasted a week that you could have been a little bit more productive in. And so I have been very careful about not shocking too bad. I try to everything again, I try to blend stuff a lot to where it's kind of slowly progressing. It's like the story you hear about, you know, slow cooking the frog. If you throw it in there when the water's not boiling, it's gonna stay in there and slowly you can slowly turn the heat up on it. You throw it in a boiling water, it's gonna hop out right away. You know, we try to progress through things just slowly, even keeled methodically to try to avoid any of that, those big shocks to the system that are going to put a kid out for a week or two weeks. And, you know, luckily, if it's only a week or so, it could even be worse if depending on what they do and how badly they hurt themselves because again, broken kids don't run fast. And so if you're going to err, you got to err on being a little bit cautious because sprint world. You know, pulling a hamstring isn't good if you're going to try to run the four by one the next day or an open one, or, you know, if it's indoors, the 60, like that's not going to go real well, trying to be cautious and, and load the athlete correctly. So you're talking about some of that stuff. So what we might do instead of, you know, starting with flies, you know, in, in the beginning of cross, we'll start with, with stadiums, just running stadium steps. And we'll do that, you know, maybe two or three times a week for three weeks just to get used to that. And then we'll progress to hill sprints. And then once we've got the hill sprints, we'll tack on like strides at the top of the hill. So like they'll do a hill sprint, jog back down, and then they'll do like a 10 second stride. You know, something, you know, the cueing one, that would just be, I want you to be fast, but under control. We're just looking for good foot contact. We're looking for good technique. Again, just trying to build in some of that speed and then take it from there and slowly work into, okay, now it's going to become predominantly stride type, you know, type activities or sprinting from there progress further and further into, you know, again, what you would actually see in the middle of the season. So twos and fours and things like that.
0: And that's one of the things I think that the listeners need to understand is that you actually have workouts dedicated where the distance kids are really getting up on their horse and running really fast. And it even resembles speed where it would look like speed endurance, or what I like to call speed reserve, you know, where you're extending out that speed longer and longer and longer while maintaining that really high intensity. And that is a challenge. Uh, Again, talking about learning from your mistakes. We were in quarantine this year for quite a while or not allowed to train our athletes, and we weren't even sure if we were gonna be able to run. And you and I have talked about this, And my girls were making great progress. My team was modestly talented. um, And that's saying, that's giving them a lot of compliments on that regard. But the one good thing about our season is our girls really, really improved. But I decided, okay, we are going to get through the season. We're going to get to state. So I am going to implement one of those type of speed workouts that you mentioned that I haven't done in a while, just because we weren't even sure we were going to be even able to compete. So, I'm like, if I'm gonna do it, I gotta do it this week and start putting it in. Because if I don't, it'll be way too late in the game. And, like you said, my kids are gonna be jacked up for like an entire week. So, in my infinite wisdom, I threw that workout in on a Thursday and we raced on Saturday, and my kids looked horrible. All of them across the board ran slower. And that lends itself to that idea of delayed onset of muscle soreness, fatigue that shock that can really come in but if you have that's where i think people when they poo poo periodization or planning don't understand how important that is in terms of you knowing the direction you're wanting to go and to keeping tabs on where you have been so that way when something weird happens like that like instantly when the girls took off and they went straight to the back of the pack and i was like oh why is this happening? And why is it happening to everybody? And unlike a younger self of mine, which would blame the kids and maybe chew them out and be upset at them, I'm like, oh no no no, this is 100% my fault, a problem with my planning and my progressions. And so when we got on the bus, I apologized. I told all the girls. I said, this is on me. This isn't on you. I will adjust this and address this. If we introduce something that's this different. And what you've been doing to this point, I will make sure it's earlier in the week as opposed to later so that you guys can recover. And I'm, you know, I am in nowhere in your stratosphere of distance coaching and, and what you've been able to accomplish. But I think every coach should have an understanding of that, regardless of their experience level. Now, that being said, what are things that you used to value in your training that you no longer value? Things that you think were really important to you early on, that you've come to realize, ah, it's just, the juice isn't worth the squeeze, or it just doesn't fit my current understanding of what I want to do in the X's.
1: So, <laughs> as ironic as it may sound, at, at this and with this bo- podcast or video, I used to get really fixated on training and having every detail planned perfectly. And until you know, within the last couple of years, I I think I've realized that that's a mistake to some degree. Not saying that it's not important that you shouldn't play in training. But what I mean by that is I, I got in this habit. And again, going back to like my kind of, you know, reflecting on all this stuff, going back to my beginning of my coaching career, I was coaching for, you know, with, with Coach Segrist, who was awesome at creating culture and creating competitiveness. But his training was from the early 80s. And so we were running 30 miles a week The long run is seven miles and we would do like five by a thousand every week and then like eight by 400 every week. And that's all we did. And the kids never got better because they were just doing the same thing over and over and over again. And it wasn't competitive. When I took over as head coach, I just went all in training. Like I'm going to change training completely. Like he had built this culture and had this environment that was already awesome. And the kids were great and they were competitive. And then, so I fixated on training. And then over time, I kind of got pigeonholed into that a little bit where I, I started to think that I would fix everything through training. And so actually your, uh, your discussion with, with the kids running, like what you were talking about just there a second ago, kind of reminded me of that, where there have been times where we'll go to a race and we'll, we'll run horrible. And then my, my first in, inclination is, oh, the training must be bad. but Then they'll, they'll go run a workout the next week And you're just like okay like the training's not bad like something else is wrong here that i have done and i can give an example of that one year from state we had a pretty pretty bad state meet and i was like oh i screwed the training up i screwed the training up it was awful we come you know a couple weeks off and then we come back and we're like okay we'll do like an easy progression or a tempo run or something and like my top kids averaged almost the same pace for six miles on a hilly bike trail than they did at the state meet which is a which is like this nice grass nowhere near as hilly and it's half the half the length and I was like okay we did not develop something here and it's not training it's you know it's mental it's physical or it's not physical it's it's all mental team culture like values we did we're not doing something right and so that that's one real big thing actually again is as that I've I've there's a mistake I've made is I've over focused and put everything on training and kind of neglected everything else. And so now I'm going back and like trying to fix that.
0: So was that the driver for you to then obviously go get your master's degree in positive coaching? And with that, that obviously seems like that's gotten your attention. Is it more the positive coaching aspect or is it searching out what other great coaches do to build culture? And for you, what was the aha moment when you finally figured out that maybe I do have this culture thing running in the right direction.
1: So I actually, when that state meet happened, I was already, I was in the positive cult, you know, that positive coaching program. It definitely helped. Like I used it a lot and, um, but it was more like a stepping stone. I started reading other books from other coaches and other people and got a lot more into um, things like mindfulness and meditation and, and, you know, and how the impacts of that on athletic performance because what I started kind of what I started to deduce was that it wasn't a physical problem; it was a mental problem. And we were, and what I was doing was not teaching them how to how to cope with the stresses, anxiety, and things like that that come with racing. Instead, I was basically like, I guess my old philosophy was, "Oh, you guys did these crazy workouts; you're fit like that. Should just give you confidence, and you'll be fine." But it didn't work. Like they could come back and they would race like crud on the weekend and then come back on Tuesday or Monday and run these amazing workouts. And you're just like, okay, there's something mental that we're not accomplishing. You know, again, I mean, if you want to talk about culture, like coach right by us from Festus, he's awesome with culture and leadership and, and team building stuff. And and those are important. I got a lot of ideas from him. We read a lot of books and talk about that. And so there's a lot of really good books on, the, on those types of things and team values and and other stuff and i i said just kind of over time started to realize yeah i messed this thing up like the kids i was thinking about competition different than they were like when i would go into a competition i'm like oh, i want to go destroy everybody blah 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 they didn't have that mindset and so when i would we would talk about stuff like i wasn't connecting with them and there was this big gap going back and like okay how can we reframe competition how can we you know improve mindfulness to where we're not psyching ourselves out because of anxiety and other things. Like can we use meditation every day and practice that in practice to help prevent some of these issues to where we're getting them fully focused and present in practice and before they race so that they're not in the middle of a workout worrying about if they got an A or a B on a pre-calc test. And I, you know, and you can go into all kinds of reasonings why you think this is important, like you know, kids these days and their cell phones and, you know, and some of that's definitely true. You know, but at the same time, you know, if that's that stuff's true, we got to teach them how to deal with it. That's kind of been talking about de-emphasized and I guess you know, concurrently re-emphasized is less me focusing on the training and now going back and explaining the training better, trying to add some more variety to it. And then on top of that, the soft skill stuff, the psychology type things that were missing for a while because going on a slight tangent, one thing I noticed for us, first started coaching, we were getting a lot of kids who had played soccer their whole life. Or wrestled their whole life, or had been an athlete before, and now a lot of the kids within the last four or five years have no athletic experience at all, and so they've not developed any of these mental skills, you know, from childhood because they never played sports. The only thing they've ever done is go on their, you know, PlayStation and their Xbox or their computer. It's not quite the same. Teaching them how to, you know, all these coping strategies and how to frame things more positively to where they can get the best out of themselves yeah, that's, that's kind of been my big tangent here within the last like year or two, probably.
0: So we talk about mindfulness and some of the listeners probably understand what that looks like in concept, but what does it look like for you now currently in your program? I know you and I have discussed it a little bit offline, but explain to the listeners, how does that look like as it is implemented into your practices?
1: I actually got the idea from, um, Jerry Lynch's book, Win the Day. It's got a foreword by Steve Kerr. It's really good. It has a lot of stuff about this, and he got the idea from uh, George Mumford. And I read his book, and he is the uh, sports psychologist who Phil Jackson used. And so he used him with the Bulls, used him with the Lakers. And the book, George's book, wasn't written. It was written right when Phil, I think, had just accepted the Knicks job. So I don't know if if he had anything with the Knicks or not. But you know what they would do is they would start every practice five minute meditation. And the way they describe it is they're like, okay, you get everyone in a circle. And Jerry Lynch has a pretty good ex- explanation where he's, he says, you know, practice some of those, the breathing techniques where, you know, you breathe in for five seconds, hold for five seconds, and then slowly, you know, you can spell out relax in your, you know, as you exhale. When we do that a couple times, we basically meditate for, I call it mental resex. So I was trying to frame it more nicely because sometimes meditate has a bad connotation and you think you're just crazy. But anyways, we do that for, you know, we'll do that for roughly four or five minutes. And so what I, what I instruct the kids to do is you think about it like driftwood if a thought or something enters your mind. Just imagine it's floating down the river and just goes away. And you just practice clearing your mind of all these thoughts that have nothing to do with the athletic performance. And then at the very end, what we'll do is we'll, we'll add in visual, visualization. There's one thing that I have been guilty of visualization's great, kids. You should do it, and then you leave it at that. And they're like, "Great, it's good. I know it's good." But you never actually teach me how to do it. And so then we we have we'll end the last part of that you know meditation session where it's like, "I don't want you to visualize practice for that day. Like you already know what's coming up that day. Visualize going through it." If we're trying to incorporate some of our like team value stuff, like we usually do a team value of the week. You know, sometimes I'll, we'll incorporate in there. Like if we're trying to work on, you know, positivity, for example, like, hey, when you're in this workout with your group of four trusted people here, it's COVID and we can't run in groups bigger than four, practice visualizing, or when you visualize, practice saying something positive to help these guys, you know, like your teammates, like, and specifically if you're running together and you're in a workout, it doesn't matter if you're a sprinter or a distance kid, when that workout starts to suck and you want to quit, say something positive because then it helps you and it helps your teammates. Now you're gonna get this ripple effect where you're helping them, they're helping you. And it's nice and positive. And I actually just read in a book and I haven't tried this yet. So this we'll see how this goes here in the next week or two. But a guy, he, he said it's something he does in his psychology classes, where he pairs everyone up, gives the one set of people instructions. You know, the other set doesn't hear. And it's like, I want you to sit there and be as stoic as possible. You're not allowed to smile, do anything. You gotta look at this person. For ten seconds, stoic. He tells the other group, "All right, I want you just to smile and laugh." We put them four feet apart. He's like, he's like, I've, I've tried to track the data. Eighty-five percent of people can't stay stoic. And he's like, I use this to explain like how how the impact of being positive and just having a smile can you know what that impact can do, and then you get this ripple effect where it goes out and it inf- and it infects everybody. And he uses a pretty good analogy where he talks about, um, he's like, hey, that's why you know, sitcoms use laugh tracks. And it made me think, I went to, I went to uh, see a Kevin Hart stand up with our, with our distance coach Steve Stalas in person. It was hilarious. Like we were dying laughing, we were, we were having, a, it was awesome. I went back and watched it on Netflix, you know, like the next year, it was terrible. <laughs> And just being in that atmosphere and having everyone around you laughing like that stuff is so like influential you know doing things like that and going back to coming back from my tangent to where we were these things have big impacts and so instead of being instead of being the negative impact on everyone around you be the positive impact and practice doing it it's one thing for me to sit here and be like all right you guys need to be positive today well that's awesome is, are they actually going to be positive? Probably not, because you didn't tell them how you want them to be positive or what you want them to do. So you got to be more deliberate than that. So we, I try to incorporate a lot of that stuff, again, into that visualization meditation piece. That's the visualization that happens at the end of that meditation. And we do that before we warm up. We do that, right? That's the, we get in a circle. I tell them here, everyone good what we're doing today. Any questions? Go. We're going to meditate right off the bat.
0: You say, good, What you explain what you're going to do in practice, mm-hmm. and then you go yeah. into meditation yep. so that we're creating whatever they need to do to deal with what you're doing in practice, and then also what could be the goals of the competition or whatever to yep. get that, get that mindset, like you said, primed. It's like turning your car on and warming it up before you go hit the gas and drive on the road. It's the same thing for your body. It's the same thing for your brain. Let's get yourself in the right headspace. And it's very interesting. You talk about the laugh track because there is this WandaVision show that's out right now on Disney Plus and it's spoiler alert, everyone. But basically there are parts where there's laugh tracks where there shouldn't be. And it's this. it almost gives it a weird element because you're conflicted in your mind. You're like, I shouldn't be laughing. But yet everybody is laughing. So I get a little bit of the giggles. And that Mm -hmm. kind of lends itself to the explanation that you just described, which is you can be a positive social virus as opposed to a negative social virus. And in a book, I think it was Culture Code by Daniel Coyle. He talked about how they would bring in people who were like very negative disruptors to the process and followed the data on working on a solution to a difficult problem in this group. And then they would bring in a person who was excellent at subtly being a unifier with positive energy and valuable conversation and humor and all this kind of stuff. And how much more productive that group was. And, you know, in my mind, I think about like going to a party and there's this person that's always the life of the party. And if they're not there, there's just like, everybody's trying to, do the role that that one person might do, but wouldn't it be great if you had multiple people, multiple times in different scenarios, being the one bringing the group up and being very intentional with your instruction where you're like, hey, just practice saying something nice today throughout practice, something, that's the goal. It's really interesting to see how that is powerful in a positive way, because we oftentimes think about the negatives. And one of the things that Sean, you and I went through in our education with positive psychology is originally psychology was built around all high achievers and high accomplished individuals versus neurosis. Well, the neurosis came along because that's where government funding was post-World War II. But the reality is the whole study of psychology isn't about perversions or neurosis or, weird quote unquote negative habits but habits of high achievers commonalities of positive interactions because that's really what we want we want more community we want more togetherness and we want to be able to bring that positive energy to whatever we're doing because whatever it is that makes that situation better you could be a garbage man or you could be an inspirational speaker And you could feel that your job has just as much value and happiness, depending on your disposition and how you come at your day and who you work with and what attitude they bring to the job. So that's, I know I'm going off on a tangent, but I really (laughs) believe in that. And it's really um, powerful stuff. And I'm glad that you kind of broke it down for everybody, because I don't think that would be very difficult for others to emulate and try to put into their program. And again, it won't be disruptive. You know, you're not sitting there singing "Kumbaya" and lighting sage and eating granola and all this kind of stuff. It's a real practical implementation of something positive. Okay, Coach, I've got about three more questions for you. Okay, this one is going to be about a little bit about program building, and it goes like this. In my mind, I look at your program, and I even talk to your buddies, Steven Stallis who just won the girls state championship for class five this year, you and him have a tight relationship because you coach both the boys and he coaches the girls at, at the high school. And I told him a long time ago, Stephen, in your fifth year, you're going to know how good of a job you're doing as a coach. And he ended up winning in his fifth year state championship. I wish I could magically do that for a lot of other people, but he obviously had you as a partner, to kind of help him lead the way. And of course, he did a lot of great things. I mean, he owns all that success and his kids do too. But when you were building your program, the very first year, it didn't go the way you wanted. But then from there on out, I would say that you've had monumental success, not only in your your school, but statewide. So what was the most challenging aspect of building and now maintaining your program today building
1: wise again at my first year i didn't i just didn't know what i was doing i was like oh we're gonna slap some workouts together i like all this stuff it's gonna be great like we'll be fine and it wasn't a, there wasn't much of a culture for training in the off season I and mean, i think i get like two kids come out to contact days in the summer and so that hurt us and then i was lucky enough where we had my second year, we had one kid who was really good. He ended up being 24th in state that year and he was a junior. And then he got his buddy to come out and his, his buddy was basically, was a good soccer player, but like kept getting concussions. It was like, I can't do this. anymore. And they were together, they were a really good leadership pair. And they're like, all right, we're going to basically drag our teammates kicking and screaming. We're going to do the things we need to be doing and then going from there. And so that, that obviously helped to kind of give me a leg up while I was trying to figure out what I was doing um The biggest things I would say for building and maintaining is just being there. you If you're going to tell kids they need to be training the off season, well, you better be there. Train, be there in the off season. If you're going to say, hey, you need to run, but I'll see you in April, or sorry, we'll see you in August, or you know, and if it's over the winter, hey, that's great. I'll see you guys in March for track. Like that's that's not going to work. You know, they're they're going to be like, well, he's not doing anything. Why am I doing? So you got you got to live the talk, walk the walk, talk to talk, all that kind of stuff, and then. And then for me, I guess one thing that you got to be authentic. And I think my first couple of years, I was almost like, I almost feel like I was like a tyrant. I was just like running and screaming and I was angry and like kids would screw up and I would just yell and, and just be pissed off all the time. And that's not normally who I am, but I felt like I had to I'd be on top of them. I got to be like this dictator. Like that's how I was raised, you know, children would be seen and not heard and, and all this crap. And I was like, I tried that and it backfired horribly. And I was like, okay. I just gotta be myself. Like I gotta be authentic, and I gotta be here. And it will, it will come. And then, like I said, got some kids who are serious and who loved it and were good at it. And then they got some more kids to kind of come up, come out, and it kind of just kept building on itself like that. You know, when I when I first started coaching at Lafayette for the boys, I was an assistant. We had 21 kids, 21 boys. And that was the biggest team they'd had in like six years. You know, the team had never been over 20 boys. And that was at a time when our school had like 2,100 kids. And now our school has 1,700 kids. And we're consistently getting out about 50 to 60 boys every year. You know, again, they, kids want to be a part of something. So you, you got to make them feel they're accepted. The and the way you do that is you got to be there. You got to show up and you got to, you know, you got to be authentic. You can't be some fake person or phony with them. They're going to see right through it.
0: Speaking of your athletes, what would your athletes – if they had an opportunity without you being around, what do you think they would say about you?
1: <laughs> Hopefully nothing too terrible. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I'm not them. I mean, I don't, again, I, I feel like I'm pretty easy to talk to So they, they pretty much tell me everything anyways. I mean, I, I guess the big thing that I, I would hope for and it, I wouldn't hope for it for now. I think it would be long-term is that when their time being an athlete is done, they go back and be like, he was a great example of being of honest and working hard. We may not have agreed on everything and in life, you're not going to agree with everyone every day. It's not going to happen. It's like hopefully they think, of I said, honest and working hard. And, you know, and I trying to do what's best for them, not trying to advance my own, you know, my own self or anything like
0: that. I think that's a fair assessment. I think your friends would say that or your colleagues in the sport, your peers would probably say the exact same thing about you too. I think that's accurate. So last question, buddy. All right. If you could tell your younger self one thing when you stepped into your first day of coaching, what would you tell your younger self and what wisdom do you think it would impart?
1: So I'm going to blow up this question a little bit on you. And I mean that honestly, I would say nothing to myself. If you want to go from a joking perspective, you've seen the butterfly effect. I am who I am because of the things I've lived. Now, I wouldn't want to risk changing that. I've learned everything that I've learned and the mistakes, you know, because of the mistakes I've made, because of stuff I've screwed up. And of course, it'd be nice. There've been times where it's like, man, I want to try to give this kid a chance. And then two years later, their parent is calling me, cursing me out on the phone, saying I'm a horrible human being. Sure, it'd be easy to say like, okay, I would want to tell my younger self like, hey, you better watch out for so-and-so. Their parents are going to be pissed in two years when, you, uh, when someone beats them off for a varsity spot and you take them off but you learn something from that. You know, you learn how to deal with people. You learn about being open and honest. And in that situation, you know, I could have probably laid out the lines a little bit better for that kid. And so now if there's an opportunity where there's like three kids vying for two spots, I'll pull three kids aside and be like, and I'll tell them like, I love you all. Like you're my little brother. We're going to go with whoever I think is going to help the team win best. It's not personal. And you're probably going to hate me for it. But I hope you will. You can look back on this and, in two years and three years and see that I'm I'm just trying to do the best I can. And I'm going to make mistakes and that's okay. So again, going back to your original question, I would tell myself nothing because I'd be afraid of what I would change without knowing. One thing you, and you'll you know this from the positive psychology stuff, you know, focusing on the things that you can control. I can't go back and tell myself to what to avoid, not to avoid. What I can control is, is if something negative happens, do I let it get me down? Or do I learn something from it? in these cases, I wouldn't want to change any of the negative stuff because I've learned things from them. I've kept my whole list of stuff that I've screwed up and the mistakes that I've made.
0: Yeah, I think that that's, that's a really deep and thoughtful answer. And it speaks to kind of your understanding of just the world of this kind of accumulation of experiences and how I oftentimes frame it, As be thankful for the demons who have come into your life and you fought off. If everything was angels and airwaves, it wouldn't be a learned experience. You wouldn't have any lessons that were taught that were necessary for you to get you to come up and and respond and be a better person. And, you know, not to be all religious, but I think that that, you know, when you look at like people who believe in reincarnation and these improved souls, or you even look at a person, you're like, they're probably an old soul. They've probably seen a thing or two, you know? <laughs> and that's why like coaches who've been in the game for a while, who are thoughtful like that and and kind of frame their experiences that way are really valuable as a source to reference and the look to and, and all of that. And I oftentimes think too, like, hey, if we could teach people kind of like, don't make the mistakes we made or provide some advice. And one of the best things I think about our relationship, Sean, and, and our friend circle is that we have a bunch of coaches who are kind of like another pair of eyes that can learn vicariously <laughs> from when yeah. we screw up, you know, so we're not just teaching ourselves, even though we need a list to remind ourselves <laughs> what we did wrong, but also like an opportunity to, to say, hey, hold up. you got a friend, uh, Coach Woolbreak, who likes to, you know, hit the brakes on us every now and again with certain things and kind of it really brings things back to uh relevance in terms of how we should be thinking or what we should be thinking about especially with me um in our friend <laughs> circle that's for sure
1: and I, but, and I think that stuff you know you gotta pay attention to that stuff too i mean you know from psychology and things like that like you know everyone in everyone has tra- traumatic events in their life to you know and and traumas is one thing you know you from an education standpoint we see all this trauma informed care is becoming more prevalent and you know, going back to that question, like, you know, you can let trauma take over your life or you can choose to learn from it. And so, I, you know, I, my wife always was telling me once, I guess they had to share traumatic experiences, you know, and they're trying to, like, build relationships in school and stuff like that. And she's like, I just shared your childhood. <laughs> I was like, oh, <laughs> thanks. She's like, I couldn't think of anything. And, you know, there's like, I you know they'd ask, would you change anything? I'm like, no, because that I learned so much from that. Like, yeah, it is what it is. Now I can't change it. I had no control over it. It wasn't bad. Like, you know, stuff in there. Like we've all and dealt with trauma, but that makes me, you know, who I am. And it, coaching wise, it's helped me to relate to kids who have done who've gone through similar things. And so then you can, you can be there for them. And I feel like part of our job as well. And this is again more higher order thinking stuff. So I apologize if that hijacks your, uh, your podcast. But you know, I think you got. Now, I feel like part of our job as coaches is almost, I mean, it's like community service. Like these are people who are important. Our coaches were important to us. I mean, if you ask anybody like who's a coach, they probably had some influential coach or person in their life who meant a lot to them and they wouldn't, and they wouldn't be who they were without that person. And so it's our, it's our job to be that person now. Like I had those people, my high school coaches were awesome. You know, they were like my second family. It was, one of those things. It was like the only family I felt like I had for time. Now it's our turn to pay, pay it back and pay back for the other kids. And and if they feel that, you know, they feel loved and cared for, they're going to, whether it's sprinting or distance land, they're going to perform. You're going to get the best out of that kid. So all kinds of good stuff with that, with, with those things.
0: Yeah, well, I think that that speaks to the idea of us having a, um, we we coach a pretty privileged group of kids. And so because of that, sport. And I don't want to say this in a negative way, because I don't mean it that way at all. But it manufactures some trauma and some struggle that is just going to happen through competitive athletics. And it's one of the very few places we have left in, speaking for St. Louis County in Missouri in America, (laughs) but, you know, our very unique situation. But it speaks for the importance of parents really keeping their kids involved in athletics as long as possible so that they can get told no or you're going to have to work harder or you're going to have to get creative to figure out how to get yourself in the situation. You're going to have to learn a few tough lessons in order to achieve and that idea of delayed gratification oftentimes is the most rewarding when you know you've earned something that you weren't just given. And I think that a hard and difficult life certainly provides that and teaches us many lessons that we will learn for a really long time. But then the competitive struggle for those who have that silver spoon in their mouth or have a life that seems to be, you know, just where they're walking around on bounty soft toilet paper all their life and never really ever get a scar or a scratch, this is an opportunity for them to have that moment, to be stretched, be pushed, be told no, face a challenge, because it isn't going to show up anywhere else until they become adults. And we certainly don't want them to have the first experience of a really difficult choice, difficult life be once they've graduated. They need to practice that skill of resilience and overcoming it. And you and I both know again through our training that grit doesn't happen magically. It's produced through these stretched difficult experiences in order for that trauma and that difficulty and that struggle to make us a better version of ourselves than we were when we started. Sean, thank you so much for sharing your story with us. Is there any place that people can follow you or catch up with you through social media if they'd like to reach out after this conversation?
1: <laughs> just just email me. I actually, I'm terrible at social media. I get I get in trouble all the time. I I'll check Twitter like once a month, maybe. I just I just don't function that way. Shoot me an email or something. I'm guessing you could put my email in the show notes or something. Just just email me. It's I'll actually check that. <laughs>
0: Awesome. And also everyone needs to check out his book, Distance Training Simplified. It's amazing. It's a great blueprint to getting you in the universe of distance land and figuring out how to organize your training in a useful, thoughtful, and strategically wise progressions. Please make sure you subscribe to this, share this with your friends, The more an audience we get, the more opportunities we have to scale out the wonderful and positive messages that we have here with people like Sean O'Connor and the other coaches and sports performance professionals that we have on. And remember, guys, to be safe, be smart, make good decisions. We love you. Peace out.